From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome along to the latest episode in our Top Tens series, and we are gathered here today to record a couple of these uh, at wonderful, wonderful uh, Silverstone Circuit. Kev, our chief editor, editor-in-chief, I should know that. Why have I got a sudden No, no, chief editor's editor, correct. Why right the first time. a sudden blank? Oh, um, it's meaningless, as we've discussed previously. <laughs> um, set us up for today, so let's get together uh, a new chose here. And I, I'm grateful that you did, because it's nice to come and hear some cars on the track. There's a track day going on. Uh, did uh, did you make it up all right? Because I know you've had, uh, you've got a very interesting uh, oh, I'm not. In, I'm not in the interesting car. I'm story. In the, I'm in the diesel oh, BMW okay. compact because that that one works at the moment. <laughs> the interesting car is being so interesting. It is stationary in my driveway again. Oh, I didn't know if you'd brought that along. Last time I heard uh, it was on uh, bricks were hot, stopping it going tr- backwards. Correct. So I tr- wanted to take it to the NEC. That didn't work. I yeah. Wanted to take it to an event after that. That didn't work. And would have been nice to bring it today. Yeah. It, it will make it to an event. <laughs> I always want to set an event up so that I can bring it, <laughs> but it it keeps thwarting me at the moment. I won't I won't tell you what it is until I, I've got it working in there because I want to embarrass it. Really wonderful. And uh, to weigh in on this top tens edition is Jake Boxall Leg. Uh, it's the first one you've done. It certainly is of this series. Have you done the top tens before? Yeah, we did uh, arrows in the last. Series. Oh, of course you did. Yeah, um, he was the expert on that, that one. Was he remote. did the list. I, yeah, yeah, uh, that was. So I've got to cast aspersions on Kev's list and uh, basically decide whether I agree or not. Like kind of like a Roman emperor, thumbs up, thumbs down type deal. So. No, I like that. I forget. I was remote. I was at home that day, and you were all in the office. So that's why it's a blind spot. It's nice to all be together. It is. And, uh, and We've it, even got colleagues working in the background. It almost feels like it's pre-2020. <laughs> I'll add some typing sound effects to, to the background. <laughs> clack, no, no, clack, one of them's just playing on his phone. With yeah. Sunglasses on his head. <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> Style, he says. Okay. Let's get into Let's it. Let's move on. Our top tens. What's the topic you've got for us this week? So this is a top ten worst yep. F1 cars to win a World Championship Grand Prix. So I think this is the first worst list we've done because I don't really like worst list when it comes to actual you know drivers and people because that seems a bit harsh but I thought worst cars particularly as at least one of the designers mentioned in this list agrees that the car was terrible <laughs> so uh, I thought we could get away with it with the car so we're doing a, yeah 10 worst cars to win a Grand Prix and the next episode will be the 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 10 best cars that didn't manage to win a world championship race so we've got the kind of the yin and the yang there brilliant we'll kick us off yeah, so number 10 is the Ferrari F60. So if you remember the rules changed for 2009, Ferrari and McLaren have been, you know, the, the pace setters the previous couple of years, and the F60 just didn't... I mean, both both teams actually produced pretty poor cars, um, but they did both manage to win a race during the season. The Ferrari makes it in there. If you remember, it, uh, Felipe Massa and Kimi Räikkönen struggled to even score points uh, in the first part uh, of the season. Um, the weight distribution was a bit off, because of the Kurs unit, remember that was when we had the kinetic energy recovery system. As a bizarre, a combination of factors, obviously after Massa had his uh, had his unfortunate accident in Hungary and was put out, um, Kimi stepped up, mm-hmm. I think, drove better after that. Spa he was always good at. And so he got that one victory, having helped cause a safety car period. He then used the restart to curse his way past Giancarlo Fisichella in the Force India to take the the only win, the only win of that car in the season. So it wasn't really, wasn't really a race, or shouldn't really been a race winning car. Uh, And they fell from winning the constructors' championship the year before to finishing fourth. So not a terrible car, but just quite a flawed, mediocre one for a team that probably should have done better. Not the most unreliable car either. Looking at its list of results, it didn't fall off the track every other week. No, well we're into the we're into the era in the twenty first century, aren't we? Where most of the cars are reliable most of the time. Uh, I guess the hybrids of more recent years have perhaps thrown that a little bit, but generally the, the quality control in modern motorsport is is pretty remarkable now. JBL, the Ferrari F60. It was, uh, it was, yeah, it was part of that season because, as Kev alluded to, we had that Titanic scrap between Ferrari and McLaren in 2008, and they were putting all of their resources into that, and you kind of had the other teams, and they weren't really at this point ever in, ever factoring in the 2008 race, and so they were putting all of their eggs into the 2009 basket, and you had those that big change in in rule set. 
this was kind of an early uh, forerunner, I guess, to what we have now, where everybody's going after overtaking and following. And so they changed the dimensions of the car to try and uh, improve that. We had these big snowplow front wings, very, very tall, skinny rear wings to try and change the, the, the distribution of the dirty air, let's say, um, and ensure the cars could follow a little bit better. It didn't, I wouldn't say it massively worked so much because you had the adjustable front wing and you had, rather than teams using it like what was intended to be basically a precursor to DRS in 2011, they were actually using the adjustable front wing flaps to to trim off a little bit of wing and, and, and play with that kind of balance. So it didn't really have the, the impact it wanted. Um, but Ferrari was a bit behind the eight ball. And I think if you look at the beginning of the season, the F60 was probably better than the, than McLaren's car, I think, on the balance. But McLaren developed much better through the season. Because um, I remember the British Grand Prix here, uh, Silverstone, uh, Lewis Hamilton was absolutely nowhere all weekend, a year after that stunning win in 2008. Uh, McLaren stepped it up and Ferrari probably did I think I think by August they'd kind of given up on the car and gone put it all in for 2010 but that race between Raikkonen and Fisichella for the win at Spa that was interesting because uh, as Kev said earlier um, Raikkonen used his Kurs and I think that was the one time all year that Kurs was actually useful um, I was talking to uh, it's a couple of years ago now I was talking to um, Nick Heidfeld about the BMW Kurs unit and he said every time they put it on the car it was worse and they just kept it on purely as a marketing exercise. Um, but yeah, that was the kind of the differentiator. The Force India on that day, very, very good in the straight line. And uh, it was great at Spa and Monza. But it didn't and have curves, did it? The, it the didn't have curves, no. But, you know, on a different day, that sliding doors moment, we'll be, we'll be, be talking about the uh, Force India VGMO2 <laughs> on this podcast rather than, than the Ferrari F60. It's probably worth mentioning as well that 2009 has the smallest spread of raw pace from front to back of any F1 season in history. It's a pathetically small percentage covering all the teams. So that's another reason why it's kind of in at 10, because there was there was no, actually, there was just no particularly awful car across the whole year uh, in 2009. So it was quite an interesting rule change, that one. There wasn't really a sort of de facto backmarker team, let's no. say, because, you know, Super Aguri had gone bust at that point. Uh, Toro Rosso was, you know, it was the last year of true customer cars, and they still had a, a you know, basically the same car as the Red Bull. Um, the Force India maybe was the de facto backmarker at the start of the season, but they really got themselves into gear. They had the McLaren package in the back of the car as well. So, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting... I remember that season very, very fondly, um, not just for the button title triumph, but um, for, for the rest of it as well. But, yeah, it was a, a good year. All right, moving on. In ninth place. Yeah, number nine is the Shadow DN8. Uh, its victory was the 1977 Austrian Grand Prix of Mylon Jones. Its best other result was third, and it finished seventh in the Constructors' Championship. So that's like if Aston Martin last year finished seventh, if they'd had randomly managed to have a win in there. So this wasn't a particularly terrible car. It wasn't absolutely horrendous. It was just very mediocre. It was a bit overweight. It was slow in a straight line. Uh, on a good day, it could score a point, which in those days was top six. Yep. On a bad day... Both cars failed to finish. But when Alan Jones was in it in 1977, it did have a few good moments. But by far the best one was was that race at the uh, Earthstrike ring. He started 14th, uh, but it was a wet track. He started on slick like a lot of the other runners, and he just came through the field, uh, kind of giving, I suppose, a little bit of a hint that, that this guy actually had some real potential. So he went on to be world champion. Uh, and he was running second, to James Hunt, who was good in the wet as well. But then the uh, McLaren's Cosworth DFE blew up with 11 laps to go and, and Jones came through to win by, by 20 seconds. Mm. So actually quite a quite a big win, really. One of those, uh, one of only 20-odd races that been won from outside the top 10 on the grid as well. Um, so it was just one of those situations where the car was all right, held together, stunning drive in difficult conditions, got it onto the list. Why did it only do the first four races of the 78 season? Was it because the DN9 wasn't ready or it was so bad they were like... Yeah, no, well, they, they... Yeah, it was in those days, you, you know, they'd introduce cars when they were ready. <laughs> <laughs> so the DN8 had actually appeared in 76 uh, and was all right. Yeah. And then was all right in 77 and they right. just... Yeah, I think they're, that... Um, yeah, it, it was just a, a midfield, a midfield battler really, um, which would normally have been forgotten by history much more had it not been for 
yeah, had it not been for uh, for that win. Striking car of the era, JBL. What are your uh, your thoughts on the the DN8? I think it was an interesting period for Shadow because um, the, you know they were very very strong in the the mid seventies. Um, by this point, at which Jones got Jones got his win, um, they were sort of falling off a little bit. We're still you know a year out from uh, the split that eventually created Arrows. Um, and obviously the, the your favourite subject in, indeed <laughs> and uh, you know I could talk all day about that but uh, we'll just mention in, something in a minute but um, just remember that Alan Jones came in because um, you know Tom Price had his fatal accident you know one wonders what, what he could have potentially you know achieved later on in Formula One Alan Jones comes in and um, marks himself out as you know the champion that he would become Shadow was sort of looking relatively let's say underfunded I think by this point they'd lost the UAP sponsorship um and then you know their main backer Franco Ambrosio at that point uh he walked out with Jackie Oliver and various other technical members including Tony Southgate and uh formed Arrows and then the DN9 that followed it up um the the Arrows FA1 was almost a carbon copy of that because uh Southgate had used intellectual property that he thought he'd owned right and uh it was actually intellectual property of the the shadow team. And um, I think, you know, the high court found that the two cars were pretty much the same. And I think Arrows had pretty much had to go and build a new one because they, they kind of knew that they were down and out in that court case. Yeah, they knew they were going to lose. They already had a car pretty much ready to go, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Which also looked very, very similar as well. Hmm. Okay, let's move on. In eighth place. So eighth is the Toro Rosso STR3. So this is the 2008 car that won the Italian Grand Prix and what I regard as Sebastian Vettel's greatest victory of his 53. Um, and the STR3 was, I mean, it's being a bit simple, but it was kind of like a, a 2008 Red Bull with a Ferrari engine instead of a, a Renault one. Uh, they didn't start the season very well. They struggled quite a lot, but they, they had a B-spec um Sorry, they, had, they started the season with the beast bet of the previous year's car. And they once they got up and running with STR3, mm. uh, sort of second. And of course, Vettel was a hungry young talent coming along, so, you know, kind of battling. And, and they, he put strung together some really good points, finishes. Obviously, the basic car wasn't a terrible. So, again, that's why it's only eighth. We'll get to some really not very mm. good cars higher up on this list. Uh, and of course, it had its, its day of days at, at Monza. They'd moved the weight distribution back, so that helped with traction out of the chicanes and in the wet. Vettel was on it. His only real rival was Lewis Hamilton. Who, yeah, they went the wrong way with the tyre choice during the race, and and Vettel sort of reeled off that reeled off that win. Um, but the best result the car had outside of that was a fourth. So I didn't get on the podium anywhere else. Um, and in the constructors, they ended up sixth. Uh, although that was factoring in the the B spec previous year's car. So again, not a terrible car, just one of those sort of midfieldy type cars that that managed to get onto the winner's list because of conditions and a virtuoso drive. So a 21st century version of the shadow, if you like. Absolutely. And Sebastian Bourdais couldn't do too much with that that car, JBL. It was disappointing to see uh, Bourdais not quite match up to Vettel because he'd had those four champ car titles in a row and he came into F1 and we thought, finally, somebody else that can sort of maybe do what Jacques Villeneuve did in 1996 and 1997, but unfortunately it wasn't to be. Um, But this was at a time where customer cars were very much in vogue because... um, you had the teams like Williams and uh, Spiker slash Force India at that time uh, completely against it because you had teams like Toro Rosso and like Super Aguri using either the previous year's car or a current specification car. And um, this was basically, as Kev said, the, the Red Bull RB4, but with a Ferrari engine. Um, Red Bull picked up a Ferrari contract in 2006, but then uh, shunted it off to Toro Rosso for, for a Renault supply in 2007. So it was a little bit of sort of bits of cast-offs and that sort of thing. Obviously, the team was ex-Minardi. It maybe didn't have the facilities to do everything itself. Eventually, you know, it it did when customer cars were banned uh, formally for for 2010 and beyond. Um, But that that drive from Vettel, I remember, you know, incredibly fondly. It was was a wet day. Uh, The conditions were difficult. To put in that kind of drive, I think he'd had a very difficult start to the season. We have to sort of, it was a little, almost a little bit of a crash magnet in the first uh, four or five races. To go and do that in your first full season, um, to drive a midfield car and, and, and completely destroy everybody else, nobody else got a look at it. Well, Kovalainen was second, wasn't he? I think in that race. To put everybody else under that 
level of domination you know that was the indicator of what he'd become with mm. red bull a little bit later um it, it, it is it, it, do i think that there are probably worse cars that aren't on this list that could be on this list ahead of that maybe oh well, go on then what what go, go for it uh i would have said the uh 2020 alfa I think that was, I think Gasly's win was maybe a little bit more surprising than Vettel's win. Probably was more surprising, but then it was in a dry. Like it was in a dry race and held off for McLaren. But, I think it was yeah, a terrible car, maybe. but it's uh, yeah. But I think those those early New Years at Red Bull and you know he designed this car as well. You know it was it was difficult because they didn't have the infrastructure and he didn't have the team behind him and he was still had was yet to put his mark on the team. But 2009, that was the case. But um, yeah, no, it was uh, it was such a, a stunning drive from battle that day. Even back then, he was naming his cars. This one was called the Julie, according to its Wikipedia page. <laughs> so there you go. Which a fine name for a car, me Julie. Let's move on. What's next? <laughs> so this is perhaps the last one that last car that might be regarded as a bit unfortunate to be on such a list. I think when we get into the top six, we'll be into some very dubious machines. This is so, number seven is the Tyrrell 011B. So this is the flat-bottomed car um, after the you know, 011, which obviously was still a ground effects. Um, it just wasn't normally on the pace. It still had a Cosworth uh, DFV variant. Uh, ultimately ended up with the DFY, uh, which is basically a very similar engine. Um, uh, and it was up against the turbos. So it struggled to get into the top 10, really. Um, and it wasn't particularly reliable either. At least the year before, the car had been quite reliable. But obviously, tight street tracks where the turbo lag was bad on, on, on those cars um, and they couldn't stretch their legs as much, gave them an opportunity. Yeah. And in Detroit, Michele Alberetto, he qualified sixth, second fastest of the Cosworth runners. He did need a little bit of, he did need a little bit of luck um, because other cars around him uh, had various uh, problems. Uh, Keke Rosberg's Williams had a refueling and tyre stop, which was slow. Williams used to be bad at pit stops in the 1980s, didn't they? Even their quick cars, they were quite quite bad uh, with that. Uh, he moved into second when there was a fuel system problem on Rennie Arnoux's Ferrari. And he then was chasing Nelson Piquet's Brabham, uh, which got a puncture with 10 laps to go. So it was a very fortunate win, this one. Mm. And its best other finish was fifth. So uh, and it finished seventh in the constructors championship. So yeah, a very mediocre machine to be a Grand Prix winner. It was a uh, it was an interesting period for for Tyrrell. Though know, after Jackie Stewart left the team, um, they were very very experimental with their cars. The six wheeler, obviously, uh, the foray into kind of ground effects. And by this point, the the O eleven was was pretty outdated. They were waiting for the zero one two to to come into force um, and and you know surprise people uh essentially um albrecht this this wasn't the first time that detroit had thrown up an interesting result uh you know john watson had won from from 17th the year before um albrecht p6 that's uh, much better but in a as, as kev says a car that wasn't suffering from turbo lag i think it was it was false started twice i think uh i think de Cesare stalled on the first start uh patrick tombe stalled on the second start you know tombe can i don't think he could take the restart i need a fact check on that but that was one place that the uh, albrecht had made up didn't didn't ever visit the pits at any point uh, I think Lafitte pitted I'm not entirely sure for what reason Piquet had a puncher that helped his progress through the field but yeah it wasn't wasn't a particularly inspiring car it was just like at this point Tyrrell was a midfield team and this was a midfield car and it just you know it had its day in the sun there was usually one or two races where a naturally aspirated car could take control whereas you know you would see on days like Mexico where it would be the turbo cars that would, that would dominate uh, you know a bit later on in the 1980s so you know everybody had their kind of their day in the sun and this was it yep alright let's get into uh, the uh, the list Kev where you say there are some terrible cars that had no business finishing first let's get into the next one so number six is the 1981 Ferrari 126CK this is the first turbocharged Formula 1 Ferrari uh, and it's the only car on this list to win two World Championship Grand Prix but don't let that fool you <laughs> it was terrible so uh, they reckoned I think Harvey Postlethwaite who, who, who joined Ferrari reckoned it had somewhere between a quarter and a third of the downforce of the front running Williams and Brabham uh, Cosworth DFV powered cars 
which you, I imagine that today, you know, we're talking points of downforce. Mm. So that, that's absolutely miles off. And one of the things I find most remarkable about this, because it had a lot, obviously, it's a early turbo car, lots of lag, Larry car. And it, it's two wins came at the s- two of the three slowest venues on the track, mm. uh, on the calendar. Uh, thanks to Gilles Villeneuve at Monaco and Spain. And both of them are remarkable wins. And I would suggest are examples of driver virtuosity. So Monaco, he qualifies on the front row, two and a half seconds quicker than Didier Peroni, mm-hmm. who, as we said before in previous podcasts, was on pole at Monaco the year before. Mm. So not slow. Two and a half seconds quicker on the front row. There was no way that, that, that Villeneuve was going to be able to beat Nelson Piquet's Brabham mm. in that race. Uh, and eventually he, he let Alan Jones pass in the Williams. Jones then went off to chase Piquet and pressured him into driving into the wall, which given the animosity between them at the time was quite amusing. Yep. And then Jones hit problems, and Jones respected Villeneuve. So when Villeneuve came and caught him up, he gave him maybe a bit more room than he would have given PK, let's yeah. put him that way. So this truck of a Ferrari wins the Monaco Grand Prix. He then goes and uh, makes one of the greatest starts in F1 history, I think, at the Spanish Grand Prix, charges up to third, then catches Carlos Roisman napping at the start of the second lap. And he's like, right, he's done a heroic job to get into second. And then Jones very uncharacteristically threw it off. And Villeneuve spends the rest of the race with a, a tra- an increasingly large train of cars <laughs> behind him. Yeah, the top five were covered by 1.24 seconds at the end. And the cars behind were, you know, were capable of lapping much faster. Yeah. So, you know, it was a driver not making mistakes and using the power of the the power of the, the engine to stay ahead. Yeah, and so um, independent. And- uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but just, just I, I think this is, Villeneuve at his peak he's kind of thrown away that he's got or, or he's matured from the kind of guy that was having lots of incidents and things early in his career you know he didn't put didn't put a foot wrong the best other result that car had was third and they finished fifth in the constructors championship um but really I think a lot of that was down to down to down to Villeneuve's efforts really it was an interesting life cycle for the car because um the 312 t5 uh used in 1980 was was awful uh, yeah, that was, that was nowhere near getting that on the was list. Even <laughs> no worse. Um, but I think that part of that was because ground effects were coming in at that point, and it was a huge, uh, a huge you know, area of development for the teams. And at this point, Ferrari was steadfast in its belief that the Boxer V12 engine, big flat engine, was the way to go. But when you try and have that, package that, and then you're trying to have ground effects as well, there's not the room for it because you've got this big flat engine. You don't have the room to to, to put these Venturi tunnels in. And so I think the, the move to turbo, everybody was doing it, sure, but it was out of also packaging necessity as well to try yeah. and ensure that you've got a slightly smaller um, footprint in the car to make use of those uh, that ground effect aero. But what, it wasn't just turbos that Ferrari wanted to explore. The 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 K in the name is uh, in deference to the, the the German company that supplied. It was it has a very unfortunate name, uh, but it supplied the turbos to Ferrari. But one of the things they considered um, was what's known as a pressure wave supercharger. So supercharger rather than turbocharger, it does its compression using the the crankshaft of the engine. But the pressure wave element of that is you're using the pressure from the exhaust gases to actually physically produce the compression but they couldn't get it to work so they were just like oh I'll just use a twin turbo it's fine whatever everyone else is doing it so they were trying to be a little bit too clever for their own good in that regard but as, as Kev said I came across that Harvey Postlethwaite quote too and he, it was uh, I think it was a quarter probably exaggerating but there that's we are that's why I, I, I felt that that was probably a bit so we'll, we'll say maybe a third to a half <laughs> but um yeah, he came in midway through 1981 and looked at the car and was like, this isn't what we need at all. This is this is massively lacking. And, you know, he was part of, you know, trying to get Ferrari back on the right course in the mid-1980s uh, because it was, it was on a downward curve at that point. In the 1980s, we sort of look back on it as a kind of a bit of a lean time for Ferrari. But Alberto did take the team into championship contention a bit later on um but yeah this was uh, a, a bit of a low point for the team it wasn't as bad as the season before but the the 126 ck isn't no because the, go the c2 and c3 cars that he worked on actually were very good weren't they i mean you say the c2 is probably the car of 1982 and they did win the constructors championship both of those years so they did that although there was obviously that famously long 21 years between jody Schechter's Drivers' Championship, Marcus Schumacher's in 2000. Actually, there were a few decent Ferraris in that period.
period and mm. they did win the Constructors' Championship uh, yeah, a couple of times in the early 80s. And if any listeners are wondering what the unfortunate name was, it's because the initials were taken from Kunal, Kopp and Kausch. Uh, these days, renamed Howden Turbo. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> a different name. All right, uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into the top five. Stick around. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, Kev, let's get into the top five terrible cars to win a world championship F1 race. So, number five is the Ligier JS43. So, it won the 1996 Monaco Grand Prix with Olivier Panis. Its best other result was fifth, and it was sixth in the Constructors' Championship. But the stat I really want to throw at you is that it was 2.5% off the pace setting Williams FW18. That is further away than the Williams was at the back of the grid in 2022. Right. So imagine the Williams from last year yes. winning a Grand Prix, basically. I mean, they scored, what, a couple of points? So, um, yeah, so that's kind of what we're, what we're dealing with in terms of how far it was uh, off the front-running cars. Yep. And Panis qualified 14th at Monaco. We think, OK, well, there's nothing particularly remarkable so far. And then we had one of those crazy Monaco races. <laughs> there was rain, Schumacher crashed, Damon Hill led, the engine blew up, Lacey had a suspension problem, and Panis overtook cars. Um, <laughs> and found himself in the lead being chased by David Coulthard's McLaren and running out of fuel but he put it on full lean and went I'm not coming in this is my one chance to win a Grand Prix which is correct yep um, and he held, he held on to it and he, he, he took the win the first Ligier win for 15 years Panis' only win so he's on our one hit wonders list yes. as well um, so just a, just a ridiculous comment again a combination of I think the driver having his day of days yep yeah, Panis was a good Grand Prix driver but I think that was a great drive. Yeah. Um, the conditions and, of course, with all these cars, we're into the realms now where they need to have some luck to be winning races. <laughs> and he's definitely had some luck on that uh, on that day. Um, and and that win, of course, contributed to them finishing, Elijah finishing th- sixth in the constructors' table. Uh, so, yeah, not not a front-running car by any means. Nothing like as good as the, the Prost mm. that came along in 1997, which actually was a genuinely good car, but didn't win a race. <laughs> uh, so there we go. I don't know if J- JBL disagrees with any of that, but I, I thought it was deeply mediocre. I do agree with you, but I would also like to play devil's advocate in that it was a development of the JS41 and relative to the popular belief, the JS41 was the Benetton V195. Um, and this was at the point where Flavio Briatore owned Ligier, but he was also in charge of Benetton. And so that was that weird cross-pollination where he wanted the Renault engine supply. So he bought out a team, took Renaults off to Benetton and gave them, you know, stole the Mugenhorns off Minardi. Um, but that's uh, that's by the by. Um, but this the JS43 was a development of that car, the, the, the JS41. That Monaco race obviously will go down in history as one of the maddest races to have happened in Formula One. Um, you know, for, for, for Panis to pre- prevail through that, sure, luck was involved, but you do have to take your chance when you, when you take it. Um, the team was in a weird sort of uh, limbo at that point. As I said, Briatore and the team, but it was for sale. Alain Prost hadn't yet bought it. Briatore was hands-off uh, at that point. The team was being run by Bruno Michel, now of uh, running Formula 2 and Formula 3, uh, my former boss, as it were. <laughs> and um, so they were in this weird holding pattern of having this support from the French government, but it, it wasn't, 
you know, in its heyday at all. It was in limbo, it was in a holding pattern. Um, it was waiting for that investment from, from Pros to come in, which it eventually did. Um, but again, this was just one of those days where Panis made the right decisions, um, escaped a, a run-in with Eddie Irvine at the hairpin and uh, went on and famously uh, flew the, the Tricolore through the, uh, the the streets of Monaco. So um, it was, a, it was a, a good day. Brilliant. All right, let's move on. What's next? Number four is the Williams FW09, 1984 Dallas Grand Prix winner, thanks to Keke Rosberg. Its best other result was second, um, which is better than some of the cars on this list. Uh, Constructors' championship position was sixth. Uh, the reason this is here is partly because it was so difficult to drive. Right. So Honda, very much like actually their recent efforts, mm-hmm. it took them a little while to produce the you know a good engine. Once they did, of course, they had mm. the benchmark engine, but it took them a little while. Uh, and this was the first uh, Honda turbocharged uh, Williams in 1984. Uh, and it really owed its victory to, to, to Rosberg. Um, he was better prepared for the heat of Dallas. Than his rivals, he had a water cooled skull cap, which I rather like. Nice attention to detail there, so that he didn't he didn't boil the. And it was one of those races where the the trap broke up. Uh, he started seventh, but he was he was quick in the race. To be fair, a few other people fell off. There was a lot of lot of offs and crashes that day, and Rosberg just kept his water water cooled head. Mm. Uh, and amazingly, the Honda didn't didn't blow up. Uh, but I imagine controlling that thing like light switch throttle around around the the Dallas street circuit um uh, but the tra- and the track surface broke up as well um and even Alain Prost crashed he mm. didn't crash very often at all uh now after that they did introduce a B a B model straight after the next race yeah very next race uh but that only managed two finishes <laughs> it was a disaster so uh <laughs> so this is one of those cars that was difficult to drive not particularly quick i mean it had its moments the speed was probably its least Right, terrible okay. issue. So it's difficult to drive and unreliable. So it's all what you wanted to, with your with your with your uh, Grand Prix car. So it took it, it it played that day played to Rosberg's strengths. I think we said before he was a great improviser. Yeah. Um and when things went a bit wrong, the weather was a bit odd, track breaking up, that kind of thing, he was he was good. He'd hang on to something. You know, if you watch old footage of Rosberg, he's always sideways. Uh, and he struggled massively when he joined McLaren and those cars understeered. Mm. He just couldn't drive it as quickly as Prost. But with a car with a tail hanging out, he could he could do the business. So yeah, it was a it was a car that didn't really deserve to win a Grand Prix, but but Rosberg did it for them. Yeah, and he didn't even kind of build up to it. It was just one of those kind of results that came from nowhere. JBL, your thoughts on how bad this car was? It was strange because as well as Kev said, you know, this was at the start of that Honda foray, they'd done a season in 83 with, uh, with spirit, but that was, uh, you know, very low key. Um, Williams saw the, the potential there and, uh, brought Honda on board and, and Honda were happy to, to acquiesce and join a big team. But this early, sta- uh, early stage Honda turbo engine, um, it was very, very forceful. Let's say it was very, very, uh, it, it was hard for the chassis to contain it and it was all or it. nothing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it was um, Williams hadn't really built a car that could that could deal with it, and so um, because it was rattling about in the chassis, the, in the chassis, and uh, what happened eventually was that the, the the engine started to undergo a little bit of torsion while in the back of the car, and so they would get the engine block back, and they'd find that it was very slightly twisted. That you know that was the amount of force that was going through that engine, and the the chassis just wasn't able to kind of hang on to it and keep it, you know, relatively you know as, as damped as it needed to be. Uh, and that day at Dallas again, it was very very attritional. Um, I think seven cars actually finished inverted commas uh, because partly because uh, Mansell was classified sixth, but he had a gearbox issue uh, right towards the end. And it was that w- another sort of limbo stage as well for the team because if you look at that car, it's this boxy looking egg yolk kind of livery thing. It's got that sort of cross between the early 80s uh, Saudi livery and what would eventually, you know, become the, you know, the Williams standard in the, the late 80s with the uh, sort of blue, white and, uh, and yellow livery. It's just, it looks weird. It's not a very nice looking car. It looks, and it was very, very draggy um, for its part as well. 
it had all of this engine power, but it couldn't really contain it and it couldn't really make the most of it. And um, I think that's partly where it fell down as well as the, the you know, the handling issues that generally come with that. And for, for Rosbo to do that on that day, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good result. The old cliche to finish first. First, got to finish. Exactly. Outlasted, outlasted the pack. Just thought of another cliche actually, because what JBL said there about the aesthetics of it. I did a, I did a, I think I've done a ten worst looking F1 cars to win at some point. Right. Maybe just, uh, uh, and this, I think this was on it. I think actually most of these cars, you know, if you go through the, uh, if it looks right, it is right. A lot of these cars don't look right. I would say in this ten. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just scrolling through, looking at pictures of all of them. I mean, I quite like the Ferrari, but. I wouldn't don't think you could call it beautiful. Mm. <laughs> I think most of these cars are actually pretty pretty bad to look at. Having said that, the next one on the list, I don't think it's particularly unattractive and it actually wasn't a bad chassis. And the car itself I think was okay. So at number three mm. is the Lotus forty three. Now it won the nineteen sixty six United States Grand Prix in the hands of Jim Clark. Its best other result was it didn't have another result. <laughs> it didn't finish any other races. Uh, so that's why it had to be so high on this list. It literally could not finish a race except the one uh, that it won. Um, it started five Grand Prix and Clark qualified in the top three for each one. So the pace wasn't really the problem here. I mean, you would say, well, it's Jim Clark, so it was going to qualify quite high because that was, you know, speed. He, was, he, he had the speed thing down um, and he qualified second at Watkins Glen. Uh, and on this occasion, everyone else fell to pieces. What's amusing about this, of course, is that the main reason it was unreliable, this car, is it had a BRM H16 engine. So Lotus and BRM obviously rivals during the 1500cc era. Lotus didn't yet have the engine that they were waiting for, which, of course, was going to be the Cosworth DFV, paid for by Ford. So they kind of made do. They used the Lotus 33 with a bigger engine in a few races, and they got hold of the, a BRM customer engine, uh, and it was horrendous for them as well. Uh, H16, overly complicated, needed lots of fuel, too heavy, very unreliable. So unreliable that Lotus's own engine blew up in practice. So BRM lent them an engine. And that's the one that held together to win this race, which must have been pretty galling from BRM's point of view, I should imagine. Absolutely. Um, it was one of those city races where even the reli- normally reliable Brabham's blew up and Clark just kept going round. It was probably one of his most fortunate victories, but perhaps given the appalling finishing rate of the car everywhere else, perhaps he'd earned that. Uh, he'd probably earned that one. Yeah, JBL. There's, what's interesting is there's quite a lot of carryover to the Lotus 49 in this car, I think. It, but that was all in terms of the chassis. The, as Kev has alluded to, the big H16 engine was a, uh, a real problem, let's say. And um, when BRM spawned that idea they were like mm, well what's better than one v8 two v8s let's stick them together why is this so thirsty and heavy <laughs> and unreliable um when you're creating an engine of that size sure in the 60s everyone's experimenting with things and doing all because the, the engines were so much uh, the, the the regulations rather were so much more free and you could just kind of do what you wanted and everybody would converge onto something uh, regarding depending on what worked best but you know you'd have a go and you create this massive engine um, because you know on paper it's it's uh, it seems like a good idea at the time but uh, history will show that it wasn't in terms of the car as uh, Kev has already said it's it wasn't wasn't so bad and there was quite a lot of carryover to Lotus 49 uh, particularly with regards to the chassis design but um, yeah I think some some things are best left in the past and Formula One cars going around with H16 engines uh, <laughs> is probably best left there. It was just the unreliability that pushed it up into the top three on this to not have yeah. any other finishes. Yeah, all the other cars have got something else. Yeah. Even if they didn't get onto the podium, but but to not have any finishes at all, I know it's fewer races, but even that says something, doesn't it? <laughs> they yeah. just didn't. They just didn't want to. They didn't want to run it. Um, yeah, I think uh, it was a stopgap while they were waiting for the forty nine. Yeah, used to be able to go see this engine at the Donington Grand Prix collection uh, when that was open, but I don't know where. If you want to go see some oily bits, it must be on display somewhere. Yeah, well, they rebuilt. I think Andy Middlehurst, uh, who's won a lot of races in X Clark Lotus twenty five chassis R four. He has been involved with restoring and driving, I think, at Goodwood, the 43. So I, I do believe it still it still exists, or it has been resurrected, I mm. believe. Um, 
uh, yeah, I imagine keeping it for a, keeping the H16 running to go up the hill at Goodwood is probably a little easier than trying to make it last a, yeah. two, you know, an hour and a half, two hour Grand Prix. It's quite a beast. Uh, all right, let's move on. What's next? So number two is the Ferrari 625, which had a couple of different engines, 555 as well. And this is just offensively far off the pace setters. Of the, this is why it's so high. It's just boring. It's boring to look at. It's got a four-cylinder engine when um, Mercedes had a straight eight and Lancia had a V8. The Lancia D50 had the pannier tanks and was a bit of a, a bit of, I think, probably the best design of 55, actually. Mercedes won everything, classic silver arrow thing, Fangio Moss winning everything. And so how this won a race, it's just offensively just... Uh, bearing in mind that obviously Fry had been sort of kings mm. in 52-53 uh, yeah, during the two-litre era. Uh, and it's just, you know, if I, even the race it won. So Maurice Trantignor qualified as the fast, fastest Ferrari in Monaco that year. Uh, in ninth, 3.3 seconds off the pace. Nobody qualifies 3.3 seconds off the pace anymore. Um uh, but it's just one of those races where, I mean, Trantignor was a good sort of journeyman, keep the car running. He, he finished a lot of races in an era when a lot of cars didn't finish. So uh, I think he was good on the machinery and he actually ended up winning Monaco twice. Um, Fangio and, and Moss uh, cleared off um, uh, and Fangio had transmission problems and then Moss had a, a very rare engine failure on his Merc. And then Alberto Ascari should have won in the fantastic D50, but decided he'd rather go and have a swim in the harbour instead. <laughs> Crashed into the harbour, <laughs> survived, uh, and Trantignor was left to win uh, by 20 seconds. Uh, and that, But thereafter, the Ferraris were rarely within the same postcode as the Mercs. <laughs> yeah, even the D50, they had Lancia had no money, mm. and Castellotti, Eugenio Castellotti put it on pole at Spyro the Mercs and was at least... Putting up a good fight, mm. I think a Lance, a well-funded Lancia with Ascari driving would have would have put had a real fight with Moss and Fangio yeah. the year. But Ascari, unfortunately, was killed in a sports car crash, and Lancia ran out of money. And the Ferrari just did nothing. It was usually minutes off by the end of a race. It did have a best other result of second, um, but it was all very much inheriting things. And really, it was uh, indicative of the the sort of drought that Ferrari was in. Which was only really resolved for fifty six when two two big things happened. One was that Mercedes withdrew, so they didn't have to beat them, and yep. Lancia handed the cars over. So it was, a, it was a double. Oh, and they got Fangio as well. Fangio came across. It was a triple, a triple whammy to take them from very much in the midfield to suddenly winning championships again. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just just don't really like this car. I mean, it's a Ferrari, so I'm I'm probably upsetting lots of people, but it just didn't deserve to win a race. The most damning indictment is even though the D fifty was uh, you know phenomenally good back then um the fact that ferrari didn't have the confidence in its own engineering team that they had to go and you know basically take on an entirely different ip uh, i think that's probably the biggest indictment on this car and um it, it, ferrari had had that tremendously sort of successful early period in formula one and then we get into the mid 50s and it's just nothing sort of there that you can kind of latch on to it feels very un-Ferrari almost well it's I think not as evocative I think what's yeah that's true you know four cylinder engines not what you associate with Ferrari no. is it but, but also I think that they I'm not, not sure whether complacency is the right word but if you remember at the, obviously at the end of 51 now from AO has gone BRM has, has not been able to materialise as a threat world championship switched to F2 regulations and really Ferrari doesn't have any opposition Gordini didn't have the money. Maserati kind of got their act together a bit in 50s. I mean, actually, the 250F Maserati is around at this time as well. So I'd say it's it's, it's fourth best of a... <laughs> and there weren't that many other cars, you know. Mm. That was it. It was just... Uh, yeah, they were in a cul-de-sac and then some proper opposition came along. You know, the Mercedes and Lancia. And that was it. And they were, they were lost, really. And mm. I think it's, it'd be interesting to know in history what would have happened to Ferrari at that point had Lancia had enough money to carry on and Mercedes hadn't withdrawn after the Le Mans disaster mm. how long does it take Ferrari to start winning again um, sliding think, doors isn't it yeah exactly I think 55 is a is a big season for mo- in motorsport history for, for a number of mm. reasons alright and finally so this is the car that even the designer said yeah it probably was the worst car to win a race <laughs> uh, so this is the Jordan EJ13 that one somehow in bizarre circumstances that JBL will probably outline the 2003 Brazilian Grand Prix but didn't even win it on the day Giancarlo Fisica had to be handed the trophy later by Kimi Raikkonen so its best other result was seventh and its contrast as championship position was ninth despite the fact that it had a win 
uh, and it was oh, it was aerodynamically flawed. I'll perhaps let JBL talk a little bit more about the um, about its flaws, but it, it was just slow. Mm. It never looked quick. And the only reason it won the race was because the team had the foresight. So it's, you know, it's Gary Anderson uh, who I'm referring to. Uh, uh, they had the foresight to fill it up in the wet race into Lagos and just hope that they could get past three quarters distance when they thought the race might be called. And of course, there was a crash at just the right moment. Kimi Raikkonen and McLaren had made a mistake and Fizzy had managed to get ahead of him briefly. Mm. Uh, and that was the lap that counted. But they didn't orig- originally think that. They originally awarded it to Raikkonen and it was only some backwards and forwards with Eddie Jordan shouting and screaming, whatever. What I really like about this story as well is that the car did exactly what it does, what it should have done. It was so shocked that it had won a race, it set itself on fire in part Fermé uh, afterwards. So it's a dreadful, dreadful car uh, that uh, that was that won despite itself. It won because of uh, obviously a great drive from Fizzy, a great yep. team call, a crash, a steward's argument oh just everything you know you could run that race a thousand times and I don't think that car would you could run a thousand races and that car would never win another one yeah how bad was it um not good uh, I think it was it was a it was a point in Jordan's history where um they'd been on this massive rise at the end of the the 1990s and they were in the ascendancy they were the third by the end of 1999 they were the third best team in Formula 1 but they'd done so with this kind of panache and this sort of like bright yellow war paint vibe to them. They, you know, it was Jordan. It was a big, big name. And it all came crashing down for various reasons. And you had 2000, really unreliable EJ10. 2001, um, they'd taken on the Honda engine, but the car was lacking downforce. Again, it was unreliable. Frentzen was given the flick mid-season. Um lost Jarno Trulli over that off-season to Renault. Um, and at this point, I think Jordan had fielded a few offers from from Honda for a buyout. And if you're a smart man, you probably would have gone, we've had our day. Maybe it's time to sell up. Um, but, you know, EJ wanted to keep going because it's, it's EJ and, you know, his enthusiasm was yes. pretty unparalleled. <laughs> he was un- unparalleled. So he went, he, he carried on 2002 further decline and even though they had the works honda engine and i think they even they they'd still sort of uh stayed ahead of bar that year bar was undergoing this change of metamorphosis and honda knew they could exert more control dave richards came in at that team whereas jordan was stagnating and even signing to kumasato didn't help 2003 comes along and they they don't have this backing anymore they don't have the the same uh, amount of B&H backing they've lost their DHL backing uh, Eddie Jordan talks about in his autobiography that he thought that he'd closed a massive deal with Vodafone, they went off to Ferrari because he only had a handshake deal and lost more money trying to fight that in court um, at this point it was underfunded and it was at a time where you had these big, big manufacturers come in and it just couldn't cope it didn't have the downforce. It didn't have that 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 handling confidence uh, in it. Uh, they had to pay for for forward engines. Fisichella was demotivated at that point because he thought that he was worthy of a better seat, and he eventually, you know, engineered a move to Sauber, which got him to Renault. Uh, Ralph Furman, who'd come over from Japan, was in the other car. It was just kind of it. It was such a shift in mentality. Mm. It, things had gone into the new millennium so so hopefully Frenton had had a sort of unlikely title challenge and, and unfortunately it was just a point where Jordan was falling down and to have that that win on such a, a messy day in, in its sort of messiest period is mm. sort of fitting almost. You know the sort of the motorsport universe was looking after them that day as well because at one point Furman has some sort of failure I'm not sure it's brakes or Something at the rear goes and he goes out of control and careens down to the first chicane and misses Fizzy by not very much. So it's almost like everything, the stars had aligned to make yep. sure that Fizzy was going to win that race, even though he only led the lap that they finally <laughs> declared it on. Just a ludicrous situation, ludicrous series of events to get, yeah. But everyone who worked on the car, they worked on a race winning car. So there you go. That's the great thing about it. We don't do many worst lists, but I've liked this one. 
Yeah, you like this yeah, one? Yeah, I'll 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 try and think of some I think, some other ones really. Well, um, I just you got to be. I think the internet is full of 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 the top whatever worst because it it gets clicks, doesn't it? And I like to celebrate Formula One. I know. I like to I like to try and be fair, but I think worst engines. Worst engines. We talk the about the Mat- have to Maturi Moderni. <laughs> oh, maybe actually, that's, yeah. a, that's yeah. a future one. Maybe yeah, the footwork Porsche Ooh. effort. Uh, I'll say that as a Porsche fan as well. But uh, yeah, so I think for me, I, I, oh, before before we finish, I mean, I think I, I'm fairly confident that Jordan should definitely be number one. Is that no, know? no, no, I agree with that. Um, I think uh, maybe. We, we can discuss the other order later, but uh, I definitely agree with this one because I think when you have what is a backmarker car, uh, it is the ninth fastest car that season, and the fact that, you know, Jordan 2004, 2005 was pretty much in the same, you know, occupying the same space, and we consider them at that point to be a fully-fledged backmarker team. In 2003, it was occupying the same space, but because it has that win, um, we sort of look on it more favourably, even though it was probably still, you know, at its, uh, the same level of an idea. Mm. Uh, and aside from the AlphaTauri 801, are there any cars that I haven't included at all that you'd like to throw in? Well, I think I've got two moderately controversial choices but i think they're in the same vein as some of the the first ones we mentioned yeah um and this one might be a controversial because i think it was a better car than its drivers showed uh it was the williams fw34 yes yeah uh, yeah i think it well, i do think it was criminally wasted that season but i still do only think it was maybe the sixth best car uh, of that season and the uh even though it was technically a B-spec that won, uh, the McLaren MP4 19, uh, because that was the MP4 18, which was a car that, for all intents and purposes, didn't work. It's, uh, the MP4 19 still didn't really work, and it was a debugged version that won with uh, Reckon and Spire in 2004, but it wasn't a very good car at all. Uh, and there were endless testing crashes uh, with the the earlier version the mp4 18 uh and yeah that that car wasn't wasn't strong uh it was that adrian newey sort of madcap design and him mm. trying to do lots of things with it and coming across this mis- uh, mclaren bureaucracy that kind of hindered the development it was a it was a, an interestingly messy time yeah i think that with the 2004, it's quite difficult um, because obviously you've got the you know one of the greatest F1 cars. You know, how much do you factor in the the baseline? So I think the F2004 was uh, was remarkable. So you kind of almost give it a bit of license. But yeah, I think the McLaren could. I thought you were going to suggest the 96 Ferrari that Shui managed to win three times in the F310. But of yeah. course, we've got our 96 representative. The Ligier was definitely even worse than the Ferrari, so that's kind of why it it pipped it in there. My my mind had, because uh, it's just so aesthetically challenged, my mind, I think, had just sort of like put it to one side. <laughs> I didn't even want to think about it. Well, they, we're talking about the worst cars, to, the ugliest cars to win a race. The Williams was on the list. And of course, the Williams, mm. uh, the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix, uh, that Pastor Maldonado won was, was on the one hit wonders list. It so was. I haven't forgotten it in this no. series, but I accept that. Um, I, I think it probably was a bit squandered. I think it probably was. I think if you, because I remember Williams was in for Raikkonen at that time, you know, you pop him in the car. Well, what would Barrichello have done with it, even? Yeah. Mm. What if? Well, that, what if? That's our list. Good list. Enjoyed that. But for those who are uh, in favour of positivity, we will indeed do a show about great cars. And you only have to wait a week. We're going to wait about 30 seconds, slash, a bladder break for you, dear listener. It's on the way. Uh, thank you for listening today to the podcast, our latest in our top 10 series uh, of shows. If you have any suggestions, by the way, of top 10s you'd like Kev to do um, in the future, you are more than welcome to email podcast at autosport.com. Had some good ones lately. Or, or kevin.turner at autosport.com as yeah. well. I've had some personal messages. Yeah. I have added, I know I inevitably have a list of lists. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, some of these are resurrecting old ones, some of them are. Uh, uh, a, f- a fresh mm. fresh one so yeah I've got lots on the lots on the go alright well thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on the next one